Well, it's family service, so I know the kids are in. Where's my kids at? Raise your hand, kiddos. Where's my, where are my kids at? All right. I hope that you're going <laughs> to, I had a lot of adults raise their hands. That's funny. Listen, kids and parents, I want everybody to take a deep breath. If they make some noise, it's okay. It's not going to bother me at all. So don't let it bother you either. And parents, if you need to, you know, get at your kids, just step out and do that. would be great. <laughs> I don't need you at the end of the row, you know. Old school church, that's how it used to be. You'd pass, you'd pass it down, right? Dad's sitting at the end, and you'd pass that, that knee smack down to your kid at the end of the row. No, I want you guys to feel free this morning and know just that it's okay. I'm glad you guys are here. Thank you for sharing the space. I know it's full. We figured two empty services were not as good as one full service. So we're also going to try to get you out on time uh, for the things that you'd like to do as family today. Uh, we get to talk about something that I really enjoy, which is failing. And not just failing, but being confronted in my failure. It's actually my favorite. I love it. I really enjoy doing the wrong thing and then getting called out for it. You too, huh? No, I hate it just as much as you. And I find that my response kind of can vary, right? Like when I was a kid, I remember, you know, when you're kids, you get confronted on you're doing the wrong things a lot because part of your parents' job is to teach you the right way to go, right? And if you have siblings, it's even more dicey because you have somebody to blame. I didn't, and so kids, when we get called on things, right, your parents will be like, hey, you did the wrong thing. You're like, no, I didn't. No, no, I saw you. It's okay, but you did. No, no, it wasn't me. Was this you? Were you this kid who, who could deny it to their face and you knew you did wrong, but you could straight up say, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. I didn't say, no, I heard you. I was in the room. I watched your mouth say the words. No, no, it wasn't me. Right, or, or maybe, maybe you were the kid who was just quick to blame someone else, Right? I know none of the kids do this. None, your kids don't do this, but maybe your friend's kids that came over for Thanksgiving that one time. And they're like, they're like no, no, they, he did it. No, I saw you push the lamp over it. You broke it. No, no, no. It was him. It was him. Or we do the excuses. Well, I was running, but I mean, I, technically I broke it, but I mean, it was not really on purpose. See, what was happening was, and we, we're, we get good. Are you, maybe you're, the excuse, you're like the master of excuses. I hated getting in trouble and I hate failure. I literally, I hate failing. It's one of my least favorite things, but I've learned something over the years that a life with God requires you to learn how to fail well, because what I hated as an atheist were Christians who didn't know how to own their stuff. Part of the problem with the church for so long that I had, just me, that I had was that I watched people do the wrong things and they said they were the wrong things and they would get on you for doing the wrong things, but when they did the wrong things, they wouldn't admit it. That's super irritating, right? And all it does is reinforce the wrong notion that Christians are supposed to be perfect because we think we're supposed to be perfect too. And so what we do is, in our faith with God, when we're confronted by him through the scriptures, have you ever been to church and I'm, I'm, you've been to church and you read the scripture and you're like, how'd he know that? You ever do that? How, when we're confronted by God in the scriptures or maybe there's some sermon that you hear, probably not here, but somewhere else, is that you, you get, here's the nasty word, convicted. Most of the time we're like, they're judging me. No, we're not. You're convicted because you're not living right. And here's the thing. You're not the only one. 
Did you know that you're not the only one that sins still? Does anybody else feel comforted that you're not the only one, oh, Christian man or woman that is still sinning? Did you know that everybody that's sitting around you, they're doing it too? The question isn't, are the people around you sinning? The question is, how do we respond when we are confronted by the things that we do wrong? Right, and maybe that's with you with God. Maybe you've been running from God because you sinned 15 years ago and you thought that disqualified you from a relationship with him. You might be sitting here today and you're just so disgusted with yourself, you feel like, why do I even try? Because I can't, I can't get it right, so what's the point? Teenagers, this happens all the time to teenagers. Your teenagers and my teenagers too. Right? You're like, I wanna be with God, but I can't be perfect. I must not be good enough, so I'm, why even try? It's a lot easier to go do the wrong things anyway. See, what happens is we look at our kids and we go, wow, they're so childish. And then we grow up and we're like, oh, I don't act like a kid anymore. And then we realize, oh, yes, I do. And then we don't know what to do about it. This is what we're talking about. Last week, we talked about Saul. Remember King Saul? This was, this was the man that the people chose. This was somebody who looked like a king. He acted like a king. He was a big time, big shot. He was ahead above everybody else. He was handsome, big, strong. He had lots of victory. He did his thing. He looked like a king. But his heart, his character couldn't stand up underneath the pressure of being in the position. And he blew it a ton of times. And when he was confronted last week, we talked about how he was confronted the last time and we saw his response. You remember his response? He made excuses. He blamed others. And it didn't turn out very well. And then he was told the kingdom is gonna be torn away. You remember that when he reached out for Samuel? He's like, get off of me. Just as you've ripped my cloak, the kingdom is torn out of your hands. One day, I'm telling you, somebody reach for me, see what happens. No, and, and we, we see this, this response, this thing that happens. His relationship with God is, is fractured because of his response. And he says, God is finding a man after his heart to take over the position. And you think about it, King David, a man after God's own heart. And it's like this unattainable thing, right? All the guys are like, I want to be that. Although he's like, yeah, that sounds great. Teenagers like, I wish I could be a, a person after God's heart. Do you know what made God, uh, David a, king, uh, a man after God's heart? It was not that he was more righteous than Saul. Hear me. King David was not chosen because he was more righteous than Saul. He was chosen because he knew how to fail well. What set him apart from Saul was not a new or different level of righteousness or being perfect. The reason he was chosen was because he knew how to fail well. So let's get into it. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You want to turn there? I'm going to give you kind of an overview. And we're going to hit the main portions of 11 and 12 in 2 Samuel. But what I really want to focus on is his response to the confrontation. Spoiler alert. He doesn't do it right. Okay? And this is major. So, and because kids are in the room, you'll understand if you know the story. It won't be as detailed as it could if we were an adult Bible study in my living room. That makes sense? Let's get to it. Chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, it's on page 258. I got all the pastor jokes. I'm using all of them this morning. One service, you can do that, you know. You've got to lay it out there. It says this, verse one. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent out Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This was the first step in his downfall. When he was supposed to be off doing his thing as a king, in a time when kings go off to war, David stayed home. He stayed home. He neglected his duty as king and gave it to somebody else and he just was hanging out. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And we're not gonna get into like why we, that's a whole nother sermon. We could spend, we get 15 sermons in this two chapters of scripture. We're gonna get to the, the response. And then what, I'm gonna paraphrase because we did, I wanna get to chapter 12. Because he stayed home and other people were doing what he was supposed to be doing, he opened himself up to temptation. He opened himself up in his weakness to do the wrong things. And that's what happened, right? He's looking out one evening, right? He sees Bathsheba. She's married to somebody else. And he's like, oh, dang, girl. This is, one of, this is one of my favorites already. I like it. I like where you're at. Y'all with me? And he goes and we know what happens, right? He goes and he takes something that's not his. Kids, what do we call it when you take something that's not yours? Stealing. That's right. That's what he did. He stole someone that wasn't his. Right? And then all the stuff happens. And she comes back and she's like, I got something to tell you. And his eyes go big, right? Because now they got one on the way. So he comes up with a plan because when you sin and you realize, and David, knew he, David knew he was doing the wrong thing. The first confrontation was when Bathsheba came to say, hey, guess what? We need to talk about medical insurance. <laughs> you see how I'm doing this? We'll get it just for the parent level right now. <laughs> I'm going to go on the road with this one. And his first, his first response to the first confrontation was to sin more. Was to sin more. Because he goes, oh, oh, I know how to fix it. I'm gonna cover it up. How many times do we cover up sin when we're confronted by it? We cover up one sin with another sin. And we know how that goes. That's a never-ending cycle that comes crumbling down at some point. And that's what happens. So we know how the story goes. He goes to get her husband. He comes back. He's like, what's up, man? You get a day off. Why don't you go hang out with your wife? He's like, how could I do that? He operated, Uriah, his, her husband, operated with integrity and character when David could not. He could not get him to go and be a part of the cover-up. When he tried a couple different times, it didn't work, so he sends him with his own death warrant in his hands. And he goes, and then he commits murder, intentionally kills her husband. That's bad news. This is where we are in chapter 12. After the time of mourning was over, it says in 1127... David brings in Bathsheba as his wife. 
And it says that she bore him a son, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And we knew this because Saul had displeased the Lord and he was confronted by Samuel, right? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now he was still, a, here's the crazy part. We know going into this that he was a man after God's heart. So it has nothing to do with his righteousness. So something else is there. This is why we get to the idea that it has to do with how he dealt with his failure that set him apart. And here's what it says. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now kids, teenagers that still live at home, the Lord will send your parents to confront you at times. It is their job to teach you the right way to go. It says in the scriptures, I didn't make it up. I don't like it any more than you do. I'm just telling you. When you're a grown-up, God will send people and scriptures to you to confront you in your sin. And here's what it says. He tells him this story. This was dirty rotten by Nathan, by the way. It's a dirty prophet trick. He tells him this story. And he hooks, and he gets him. He tells him this story that infuriates him. He said, look, there's two men. And they're in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man has a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him, it raised his children. He tells this story about how this poor man has this one prized possession, and this rich man has everything he could ever want. And it says this traveler came in, but the rich man, he refrained from taking one of his own sheep to prepare. And he took the ewe lamb from the poor man and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This is great. Verse five. This is where you know David's in trouble. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, that man who did this deserves to die. He will pay back four times what he stole. And on first glance, be like, yeah, David. Except he forgot. Nathan's response. You are the man. You are the man. You are the one who has everything. You are the one that has more than anybody else in the land. You have everything at your disposal and you stole something that didn't belong to you. You took it from Uriah who had one wife. We don't even get into this whole part of the story, but I'm just telling you what the story is. You had everything you could ask for and this is what Nathan continues in his confrontation. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. This is different. When Nathan says something, that's one thing. But when he starts talking on the Lord's behalf, you better pay attention. Here's what he says. I anointed you over, as king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had not been enough, I would have given you even more. He says, why did you have to do this? And he gives them the business, man. Have you ever had a good tongue lashing by your parents? I mean a good one. Like where, they, like where you realize in the first three words that you did the wrong thing and you already start feeling bad, but they don't quit. You know how that feels? They, or, or maybe you're that tenderhearted kid who they look at you and you're like, oh man, I messed up. And then they go into it. And then right when they breathe, you're like, oh, it's fine. Oh, here we go again. And they keep going. 
That's what's going on with God and, and what he's telling through Nathan. You did, how could you, how could you, how could you? I gave you everything and if, if it had not been enough, I'd have given you more. He says, why did you do this? This displeased me and said, now the sword's never gonna leave your house. He said, there's consequences and this is, gets real dicey for us, right? Because we think that if we say we're sorry, life's going back to normal, there's no consequences. We need to understand that the grace of God and the consequence of sin, right, they're both and. You can experience the grace of God in its fullness, but still have to accept the consequences to our sin. It's like when your kids, when you're like, you're going to be granted for three weeks, and they're like, I'm sorry. Hey, I forgive you. Can I go to my friends? No, you're grounded for three weeks. And if you right now are like, that is so mean, y'all need to read the Bible some more because this is real life. This is what happens in our spiritual life. We want to experience the grace of God and not have to experience the consequence to our sin. You know what happened to David? His, his son died. We find later that his, his son it does something terrible to his daughter. His son, other son rebels. Like there are four things that happen. I'm not gonna get into this for another day. Go read it for yourself. There are four things where he said, you have to pay fourfold. He paid fourfold. And we're like, man, it sounds a lot like Saul. And this is what David said. Go look down at verse 13. After he gets the tongue lashing, this is what sets David apart. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And here's what Nathan said. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, to die, thank you, Lord. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And I want to talk about this response that we find. We found that Saul responded with blame and excuses. The thing that set David apart was not a different level of righteousness, but in his failure, he confessed and he repented and he lived differently. He confessed and he repented and he lived differently. You can flip to Psalm 51. The two Psalms that you can read that show us the heart of David in this time are Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, not only are we gonna hear how he interacted with God in his confession, but we're gonna pull from it a few things that we can do as we deal with our sin and consequences in walking with God. Because again, some of us deal with this, this sin thing, like we sin once and all of a sudden, there's all these lies that go on, Right? Because as we know, there's a legitimate spiritual enemy trying to steal, kill, and destroy our lives. And in this particular case, especially when it comes to our sin and failure, he likes to dig at us. And I wanna kind of obliterate some of those things. Psalm 51. The reason we know this is at this time is because it tells us before you start reading the scripture, for the director of music, a Psalm of David so we know David wrote it when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I know, I'm as sad about it as you are. It says, have mercy. Listen, think about it. How do you pray after you sin and are confronted? When you're convicted about your sin, when you have been confronted about your sin, how's the response? Let's see what it says. 
He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Get rid of my sin. Erase them off the page, Lord. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my wrongdoing, my sin, and my sin is always before me. You ever feel that? Gosh, God, I feel like it's just always right there. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are approved right when you speak and justified when you judge. And he goes on to say, surely I was sinful at birth. See, the first thing that he does is that he acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his sin. And he's asking God to forgive him. Now, here's the thing. There's a difference between saying I'm sorry and asking for forgiveness, right? Because you remember when your parents gave you that look, like, say you're sorry. You owe that person an apology, mister. And what do you do? Sorry. Like your brother or sister sitting there and be like, sorry. You don't mean that. That's not a real I'm sorry. What he's talking about is this. When you ask for forgiveness, like you acknowledge what you've done, what David did is he was saying, I did it. It's my fault. I'm the one who sinned. I did the, I recognize you're right and I'm wrong, God. I've sinned against you. So then he goes on, he said, okay. He says, blot out my transgression, cleanse me from my sin, right? He's confessing specifically. He's not, there's not some general things here. He's understanding like, hey, I've done this thing. And when you say I'm sorry, you could say I'm sorry, but if you don't ask for forgiveness, it's not complete yet. There's a difference when somebody looks at you and goes, I'm sorry. Okay. But when you say I'm sorry, hey, would you please forgive me for not calling you back, not returning your text? I'm actually confessing and asking that now, so. <laughs> I owed you that for a couple of weeks already. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a difference. Like, some of you, you're like, oh, please, please, please don't challenge my brother or sister to ask for forgiveness because it's so uncomfortable because we don't like that. It's different, right? You'd rather say, I'm sorry, move on. I'm sorry, okay, let's go back to normal. Right, when you're, if you're in a relationship with somebody or with a friend or a frenemy, it's different, oh, I'm sorry. But to say, hey, would you forgive me for speaking harshly to you? Would you forgive me for, for being disrespectful? Would you forgive me for popping your tires that one time? Would you? Wow, that happened to a lot more people than I expected. I didn't think that was going over at all. Y'all need to get right with Jesus. You're popping people's tires. That's a little you know, extreme. But you know what I mean? There's a difference between saying I'm sorry and will you forgive me? And David is acknowledging to God his sin, and he's not just saying, I'm sorry, he's saying, please forgive me. Wipe out my transgressions, O God. And then he does this really interesting thing. He doesn't make some boastful claims about how he's never gonna sin. And you ever do this? Oh, Lord, I will never sin again if you just forgive me this one time. That's the dumbest thing you could ever say because God's up there going, what? I know everything. I know what you don't know. In five minutes, I know what you're gonna do. Why would you? 
what David does, he does not make these great boasts about never sinning again. He says, he acknowledges my sin is ever before me. And oh, by the way, I'm gonna need some help if I'm supposed to do the things you want me to do. And so he asks in verses, uh, I'm gonna have to start wearing glasses up here. He says this, look at uh, verse 10. There's a series in the next three verses, 10, 11, and 12, and we're gonna kind of land here and we're gonna go into some other things. Because this is how we have to learn to fail well, right? Because learning to fail well sets us apart as people after God's heart. Here's what he says. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart because I recognize my heart isn't. I recognize the way I think about people and see people isn't pure. So create in me a pure heart. If I'm gonna do what you want, I need you to create in me a pure heart. He says, renew a steadfast spirit within me because if you don't, I'm gonna quit and I'm gonna mess up again. Renew in me a steadfast spirit to keep going even when I wanna quit. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He, he recognizes that his sin has created division between him and God in their relationship. Remember, this is about relationship with God. And he's saying, hey, don't kick me out of the garden. Don't separate me from you, God, or, or take your spirit from me because I really wanna be in relationship with you and I recognize I blew that, but can you please, please, please keep me in close? If I'm gonna keep going with you, Lord, I need you to keep me in close. And he says, restore, I love that word, restore. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When you walk in sin without confession and repentance, it steals the light out of you, doesn't it? You lose your joy, you forget your purpose, and pretty soon you're off into the weeds wondering where in the heck God is and how you got so far away. And David knows this, he understands. Do you know what happened in that year before all this went down? You understand that he was sick. He wasn't doing well. It affected him. His unrepentant, unconfessed sin caused him physical anguish. He knew that he and God needed to get fixed. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Woo-hoo! He finished up with a willing spirit. See, because he knew that. He was already unwilling to go out and do his job in the time he was supposed to go out. He knew that if God didn't help him, he could end up there again. See, there's a very interesting uh, idea of humility and true sincere acknowledgement of the circumstance. David knows very keenly that he is not God and that without his help, he's gonna fail again. But in this failure, if what he can do is connect back with God, it's gonna be okay as long as God will help him have the things that he needs. Learning how to fail well will set you apart as a person after his heart. And the things that are gonna stop us from that are these things. Here's how the enemy lies to you, right? This is why we don't do these things. One of the lies is that, you have, that you've outrun God's grace because you finally sinned too much. Like somehow there's some holy ledger, oh, Johnny Marks, last one, whoop, that's it. You, sin, you finally sinned too much, you outrun the grace of God. You ever feel that way? That this one was finally the nail in the coffin? And the scripture is clear that your account with God can't be depleted by your sin. You cannot outrun the cross. You can't out the cross. 
It's not that you should try. <laughs> and we try sometimes, don't we? It's not that you should try, but you can't outrun the grace of God. The scripture tells us, I, I didn't want to belabor you with that many scriptures, there's so many. Here's the second lie. That the first lie that you have out, out sinned the grace of God. Come here, come on. If you think that you've out sinned the grace of God, that's the first lie. The second lie, you know the second lie? It says this, it says you might as well stop trying to please God. Your failure is inevitable, so why try? You ever heard that lie before? Have you ever heard that lie? You might as well stop trying. You might as well stop trying. Lamentations says this. Lamentations 3, 21 and 20, uh, 23. Where'd it go? There, she, there it is. It says, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Listen to that. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. In another version, it says his mercies are new every morning. So you could try to outrun his grace today or try to outsend him today, but tomorrow his mercies are new and compassions are new. So the lie that somehow it's over isn't true. So when you have that lie, take the Lamentations 3, 21 and 23 if you need hope. The other lie is this, that you are the only one who sins like you do. Mm-hmm. I know y'all work on this. This works, this works on me all the dang time. All the dang time. He says that somehow no one else in this room sins like you. Right? That you're the only one who sins like that. You're the only one who looks at people like that. You're the only one who cheats people like that. You're the only one. That's how we talked about it before. It's all good. He came right on cue. I love you, buddy. Mm-hmm. That's all right. Love you, buddy. You're a great mom. Hey, just remember, this is a living room. This is family. We don't do high church here. This is family. You're the only one who sins like you do. The Bible says that no one is good, not even one. So you're in good company. So when the devil's lying to you late at night, just remember, you're not the only one that his grace is for today. Okay? The last lie is this, that God can't forgive you because your sin is so terrible. That somehow, is it worse than adultery and murder? They seem pretty bad to me. Even if they're worse, the Bible says there is no sin that the cross didn't cover and there is no sin that the power of the resurrection can't give hope to. So when the enemy lies to you about those things, we can immediately say, that's not true. I'm gonna go to the Lord and acknowledge my sin. I'm gonna go to the Lord and seek forgiveness. I'm gonna not make big boasts, but I'm gonna pray and ask God to give me what I need to keep going with him. And do you know what King David did? He didn't quit. He kept on going. He kept pursuing God and he kept pursuing God and he kept pursuing God. He said, I'm gonna keep going after you. See, because what the devil wants to do is keep you down, right? He's down trying to do the count. One, two, and we're gonna be like Rocky where we get up at nine every single time. You're like, mm, and it looks like he's half dead, but you know what? If I got a bite, claw, scratch, and crawl my way into heaven, I'm gonna keep on coming. See, because what the devil wants to do is to make you believe that there is ground that God can't get back. 
And it's not even him getting it back because the devil hasn't gotten the ground in the first place. We don't serve a weak, minuscule, pee on God. We, we believe in the almighty, powerful creator of the universe. Remember, the devil is created. He's not the creator. And I serve the creator and so do you. And so when the lies come, don't be like Saul making excuses and blaming others. Be like David where you come in confession and repentance. And the idea is that we make the time between sins shorter or longer. Got that backwards. <laughs> the elders are like, Johnny, we need to talk. The time between sins longer and the time between sin and confession shorter. Do you hear that? The time between sins longer and the time between sin and confession shorter. Here's what we're gonna do. We'll finish up here. First John 1, 8 to 10, it says this. If we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. See, because he did not make you to break you. <laughs> he didn't make you to break you. We were already broken. He made you to understand his power and forgiveness and grace so that you can go and testify to Jesus, the truth of Jesus to the lost and dying world. I'm gonna read this scripture and then we're gonna pray and be done. Colossians chapter one, verses 13 to 23 says, I just want you to hear it. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him. That's Jesus and through him to reconcile himself all things. Raise your hand if you are all things. If you are a part of the list of all things, raise your hand. That means everybody in the room, it doesn't matter what sin you committed this morning, last night in 1957, for those of you who are more mature, if, it was, if it's gonna be next week, all things. You are part of all things which he reconciled to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once, listen, don't lose me now. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, without blemish, because of Jesus, you are presented without blemish and free from accusation. Free from accusation because of Jesus. Yeah, 
if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. Free from accusation. Not because you are free from accusation, but because Jesus made you free from accusation because of his blood. The work on the cross, the power of the resurrection, set us free from sin and death so that we would have hope. You can't out the cross and you can't outrun his grace. What if we became a people who knew how to fail well? When people know and see our sin, could you imagine what would happen on the news if people learned how to fail well? Nope, yeah, absolutely. That whole scandal, that was all me. Totally, nope, that was me, I did it. And that's the news, everybody. They had nothing to say. They would have no idea what to do with themselves. There would be no more news. There would be no more tweets. There would be no need for any of those things because as people, we would recognize, oh, okay. All right. What if as Christians, we reflected this idea of failing well because we know the power of the cross and the resurrection and we have experienced his grace and we are willing to deal with the consequences so that we can reflect Christ to the world. Let's be that kind of church that are set apart because we fail well. God, I do ask that you would care for these folks. Thank you, Lord, for this, this morning. Thank you for the kids being here. Thank you for all of it, that we can be family, failing together and struggling to confess and repent and do it differently than the world expects us to. God, we are not perfect. Thank you that that is okay because of Jesus. I'm gonna ask those who are prayer partners to come forward. And we're gonna spend a time in prayer as we finish out today. And if you need prayer, if you need to know Jesus, if you need to confess and you want somebody to help you, this is the time to do that. If you need to pray for somebody, please take the time. Let's stand together and as we worship, take the opportunity to come forward if this is your time to pray.